Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine. I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right. It's my turn. And as you pointed out, it's been more than two years since we actually read a Lauren Groff story. But in either case, it was one of her pieces, The Midnight Zone, that was the first that we read on this show, which is why I felt it was fine for me to revisit her when I was desperately looking for a story to share this week. (laughs) (laughs) But this is a Lauren Groff story that uh, I think originally, I think the first time the world saw it was when it published in the New Yorker in 2015. It's called Ghosts and Empties, but it ultimately became a part of her collection of short stories called Florida. I thought, I was wondering if that was the case. Yeah, so I read this there, which... It is my dream to publish short stories for the simple fact, like a a collection, for the simple fact that you don't have the collection until you have the collection. And in the meantime, you're just publishing short stories. People are like, yeah, that's pretty good. And then you throw them all together and you get a book deal. (laughs) Be nice. Yeah, that's my goal. That's the only way a book deal is going to happen for me is by accident. Not that this was by accident. This is a very good story. But um, I'm going to read a section now. Because the nights are so cold, I share the streets with few people. There's a young couple who jog at a pace slightly slower than my fast walk. I follow them, listening to their patter of wedding plans and fights with friends. Once I forgot myself and laughed at something they said, and their faces owled, unnerved, back at me. Then they trotted faster and took the first turn they found, and I let them disappear into the black. There's an elegant, tall woman who walks a great day in the color of dryer lint. I'm afraid that the woman is unwell because she walks rigidly, her face pulsing as if intermittently electrified by pain. I sometimes imagine how, should I barrel around a corner to find her slumped on the ground, I would drape her over her dog, smack his withers, and watch as he, with great dignity, carried her home. There's a boy of 15 or so, tremendously fat, whose shirt is always off and who is always on the treadmill on his glassed-in porch. No matter how many times I find myself sailing past his window. There he is, his footsteps pounding so hard I can hear them from two blocks away. Because all the lights are on, to him there is nothing beyond the black in the window, and I wonder if he watches his reflection the way I watch him, if he sees how with each step his stomach ripples as if it were a pond into which someone had tossed a fist-sized stone. There's the shy, muttering, homeless lady, a collector of cans, who hoists her clanging bags on the back of her bicycle and uses the old carriage blocks in front of the grander houses to mount her ride. The waft of her makes me think of the wealthy southern dames in dark silk who once used those blocks to climb into their carriages, emitting a similarly intimate feminine smell. There's the man who hisses nasties as he stands under the light outside a bodega with bars over its windows. I put on my don't fuck with me face and he has yet to do more than hiss, but there is a part of me that has more than ready that wants to use what's building up so i love lauren groff if you remember our first episode i talk about how this is probably the kind of writing that when i first read her stuff i realized is what i hope to write (laughs) and i don't know that i'm anywhere near it but when i read this i think this is what i'm trying to do i love it love it love it love it she seems to be hitting on ideas that are familiar to me as a woman probably close to her age. I think she's like mid thirties or like early forties now. She's got like two kids and a husband. She lives in Florida, but like a lot of her stories that I've been reading have to do with how she moved to Florida, which I also had to do once. All of it's just like really familiar to me. So I feel like I identify with it, but also her writing style is just great. 
I think she's one of these people that probably comes up with a kernel of an idea. Like maybe this one's about being angry and running, but then manages to make it a complete story. But there's no other plot than that. Okay. So in Midnight Zone, there was a clear plot, right? Yeah. The family goes to a cabin in the Florida wilderness. Then the dad has to leave or he leaves the kids. She tries to change a light bulb. She passes out. And then her kids have to take care of her until he shows back up. And in the meantime, she's like likely concussed, but without a way to get out. The whole time there's a panther roaming in the Florida underbrush. You're supposed to think that that's the threat, but it turns out she's the threat. She realizes in the <laughs> experience right. that she terrifies her children and her husband. <laughs> so there's a plot there, but I think the sentiment that she probably started with was what I just landed on, which is that here's a mom that is realizing she's not the kind mother she wants to be. She's really struggling in this role. And in this story, there's something really similar. And I don't think Lauren Groff says that she writes first person, but a lot of it feels like it either could be or it is. But like in the Florida collection of short stories, a lot of them felt like they could be the same character, even if they weren't, you know, explicitly strung together that way. And then others were just out of the blue. This feels like it could be the same mother character from that first story. So I like that. I like that when you write short stories like this, you kind of get permission to maybe overlap them, maybe reuse characters, but they still stand on their own. You don't have to have read that Midnight Zone story to know that these are similar women, you know, or protagonists or whatever. But when I was reading this again, it wasn't until I finished reading because you enjoy reading it. It reads really quickly. There's like these awesome sentences that you're just wowing over. But then by the end, you realize you've read a story about literally nothing. (laughs) She's just listing things that she sees on her walks, which is what I wanted to read was a section where where you kind of realize after a minute that that's all she's doing and that we can all easily do that. It's just, where does it build to? And is that takeaway worth it? And I think she's one of these people that can do that regularly. It's not easy. Absolutely. Yeah, when I was reading this, I was like, oh, yeah, you used to bring a whole bunch of stories that were more like this in form. Like, I think you've described them as ruminations, you know, you ruminate on something. And that's what it is. And um, I was like, we haven't read one of those in a while. This is uh, it's a different form that we should uh, revisit more. Uh-huh. And yeah, it was different than The Midnight Zone, because like you said, that one had more of a progressive plot. I really liked it. Yeah, her style is pretty good. Like the use of, you had the, um, in the section you read, she used the word owl as a verb, uh-huh. which is, you know, those little touches. I think we talked about a certain line. Uh, what was the line in the midnight zone? Or something like the sun was coming up. Oh. Oh, the uh, the bird sent their questions into the air or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. She's got so she's got some great lines, as you said, and um, this was really good. I, I really enjoyed it, and I recognize like this is in Florida. I wonder if it's in that Florida book. Yes, it's like oh, I wouldn't mind reading that one. Yeah. Oh, I loved it. Like I said, there's some outliers. It felt like there are stories that happened not in Florida, if I remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, what's going on here? But this was this one was cool, and I remember it. It was cool to read it standing alone. Yeah, it's kind of be different to read this, especially if you connect it with the Midnight Zone, and you kind of you overlap these two characters. Like, is this the same woman on vacation and then back at home? 
home. Right. I can see uh, it can be really easy to do that. There's not much that distinguishes them right. in these two stories, but it's nice to think of this as its own story by itself too. Yeah. I don't read, I can't remember like a ton of short story collections that I've read. I've read like a handful, you know, but there was one that I remember reading by an Irish writer named Mary Morrissey, who I like took a couple classes from. So I like bought her book, you know, I loved her writing and everything, but I remember kind of like struggling through that because I, I can't remember which side it fell on, but I know I was making connections between the characters and all the stories. I think that's just a virtue of reading them back to back. Sometimes I would sit there and read one then close it up. And sometimes I'd read two or three in a row. Yeah. And then you kind of struggle to know like how to separate them. So I like seeing this one kind of standing on its own because even if I hadn't read Midnight Zone around the same time I read it, it would still ring to me like a Lauren Groff story because this is like what she explores. These are her themes. And now I'm thinking of everything in terms of essays. I'm sure she imagined a lot of these particulars. She probably had fun imagining some particulars, but I also guarantee you Lauren Groff runs at night and, you know, pick some stuff up from those runs. So I always wonder when I see something like this that like so closely mimics what I imagine the author's real life is. And I tr- when I say that I aspire to write things like this, I will sometimes take the lazy route of making that main character fictitious when really it's me. And it's just like, it gives you, you know, a little more permission to do whatever. It gives you like that veil of anonymity, but then you'll bring it into a workshop and people will say like, well, when you wrote this or when you said this and they're like, I mean the character, right? It's so, yeah. it's so obvious that it's there. And with this, I feel like if I was talking to Lauren, I'd be like, so Lauren, this is you, right? I mean, no, it's not. I, but I wonder, I wonder what this would look like if it was first person essay, because I think my point is that this could easily be true and it could easily be first person and it could be told in this exact format and have like this exact impact. And then we would be calling it an essay of sorts, right? So I like stories that kind of easily can cross over into that. What evokes that more than anything is that it's like a list of things that, like you said, just prove this rumination. And her kind of takeaway is like, I run for my mental health because right now raising two kids and like she hints at like infidelity or something in the relationship. These things are like kind of eating away at her. And so she takes this time alone in the neighborhood to get her thoughts together and to kind of cool down. It's like her own private time. At one point she even comes home and her husband's like, "Uh, why don't you go do another lap? Because she's still real heated about something. But it's just a rumination. There's not much plot other than that, right? So that's why it feels essay-ish to me. I don't know how you would describe an essay otherwise. You were talking about this story being about her and how much, how you can kind of tell it's about, it seems to be her. It makes me think of a story I wrote recently where I took literal scenes from my own life that were (laughs) completely disconnected. Yes. But all like about swimming. So it was like this one time I went swimming, this other time I went swimming. I basically told each of those scenes as they happened to me, but then I needed to make it into a story. So I made it not me. I gave the character a very specific problem and I made the swimming part of how he dealt with that problem, kind of like the way she runs to deal with her problem. And the story became not about me at all, right? right. It just each of the things that happened in the story was not nonfiction, but r- like real things I could uh, draw from like personal experience in order to describe. But the story was about somebody else. Right. 
Yeah, so to that point, it gives you permission to invent things. When I see things like the mention of infidelity in a story like this, I kind of assume that it's not about her husband because we know that she's married and you wouldn't <laughs> you wouldn't probably out your husband in a piece of fiction if you didn't have to. <laughs> That'd be funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean like, or else like without his permission. But then I imagine I would have read something by now that talked about that, you know, a Q&A with Lauren Groff about her husband. I mean, her story. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so there's like elements where you can invent things. But yeah, I think a lot of us do what you just described, where maybe what's true to you is not enough for either an essay or for full fiction. So it's like making it fiction is what like brings it all together. Yeah, for my story, I wanted to write about swimming because I've done yes. a lot of swimming in my life, but it wasn't a story. It was like, just like, okay, I remember this one time I did this and this other time I did that. <laughs> so I was like, well, who's the person in this story that, that would do this where it would matter? And mm-hmm. so I had to invent a, a character to fulfill that role. Right. So that's, I mean, that's one of those keys to fiction, right? Is you have to have not a purpose but some central guiding principle to what the piece is doing kind of like an essay where you have like not necessarily a literal thesis statement but you have like an idea that you're ruminating on if you will yeah I guess like a cool uh, prompt or something or challenge to someone like Lauren Groff would be well why don't you just write this like it is like write the true version of this and see if you can still make it the story you know because I don't doubt that you struggled to make what was actual nonfiction in your life worth a piece right that had the arc that you wanted I'm sure you Mm -hmm. thought that through before you decided to go with fiction but I'm also kind of sure that you could come up with something that I'd still enjoy reading whether or not you were satisfied with it you know oh yeah I was I was endeavoring to make fiction I wasn't uh, trying to like write about myself so yeah 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 so I'm, all, I'm always kind of curious when I know when I've written things that are, you know, either I've pretended to pass it off like fiction and people know better, or I've written something like first person that and everyone knows it, that people are like really curious. And they'll ask questions that have less to do with fiction and what's on the page and what I've decided to share than with what was behind it all. So when I read a story like this, I'm and when I know enough about the author, like I feel like I do, I am curious what parts are true. We talked in our episode that we did on David Sedaris, how I think we talked about this. I've talked about it. He's gotten flack over the years for what he writes that could possibly be that accurate, you know, like dialogue. And he's been honest, like in interviews when he's asked about it, not in the writing itself, but kind of after the fact, he's he's like, yeah, no, I don't remember exactly. But the essence of this is my real family. Ask any of them. And I'm making light of it. And even if it's not actual dialogue, these are true stories. You know, even if it happened 40 years ago, I'm allowed to write about it 40 years later. It doesn't have to be in the moment for it to be first person accurate. So I don't know where I'm going with that other than here's a guy that passes everything off as being real. And still there's, you know, room for interpretation or ways that you can kind of criticize what he's offering you. You don't have to just take it at face value when it is written that way. I think it's almost more interesting too when when a writer, and like I said, I've done this, wants to only give you a piece of everything. Then it's, it's fun as the reader to think like, oh, I know there's more to it that they just didn't share. I like when I read first person stuff. 
Because then, then I'm just completely wrapped up in who this person really is. Yeah, that's a danger. <laughs> <laughs> it is, especially like if you're a private person that just wants to write fiction. Like, But I, I do it all the time in workshops. It's so hard in a workshop when you physically see the person not to make them the main character of every story. Or I'll do it all the time and I'll point it out when I do because it's always funny. When a man writes a story from a woman's perspective, but you don't realize it until like the third page because you're reading it in the voice of the author. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so I, I always like when uh, we bring stories that I, I know nothing about the author, or even if I know their name, I haven't like learned enough about them to make any kind of guess as to what it is I'm about to read or what kind of a perspective it could be from, because then you're just forced to like interpret this differently. So if this didn't say Lauren Croft at the top, I wouldn't be making any of these comparisons. My mind would be elsewhere. I'd be talking about something completely different, but it's like when I know who it is, it informs everything, which is, I guess, why they do blind submissions for fiction. Yeah. Yeah, some venues do. Yeah. I do wonder. I mean, this is so well written that, you know, it's obviously a winner despite who wrote it or regardless of who wrote it. I know in a workshop setting, I have biased myself against what I'm about to read by knowing whose it is. And like, sometimes I've biased myself in a way that doesn't really affect anything, but it sets up my expectations either way. Like I know what these people typically write, what they like to write. I'm primed for recognizing like common mistakes that they make, but also like common pitfalls almost, you know, I'm just kind of like waiting for similar things to unfold. And then there's obviously writers that we've read in the past whose whole thing is that they surprise you, right? That they're doing different genre week to week. And and it's, that's one way that you can, you know, make someone like me forget what it is I'm supposed to be watching for. And also we've been doing our workshop long enough that you don't have to have your name on it for me to know whose it is, right? That's right. So there's that too. But I think when we're reading published works and if you're as unread as I am, you wouldn't necessarily recognize even one of your favorite authors if it didn't have their name on it, right? You could just think this is one of millions of people who like me wants to be Lauren Groff. I might not even <laughs> recognize right. the style, right? Yeah. You wouldn't just like credit that person. There are a lot of writers out there. Yeah. <laughs> Every magazine has a new name that you've never heard of before. Right. Even if they've published like 50 other stories, it's like, oh, this person's been around for 20 years and I didn't never heard of them. Right, right, right. I don't know what my point to all of that is other than like, I don't have advice for how to avoid that kind of bias because I think as soon as you're conscious of it, it's hard to turn it off. You know, you can't just like consciously tell yourself, I'm going to read this at face value. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of how our mind works. Yeah. There's no way to avoid it. It's just that I can kind of appreciate after the fact that I've made those connections kind of based on nothing other than who wrote it. Yeah. This is such an interesting piece, you know, like you said, it's it's basically just she goes out and runs to deal with things she doesn't know how to deal with and looks at the neighborhood and sees. So it's basically a list of concrete details, little snippets, little things. Uh-huh. And it's in the first person. So we're getting we get to a sense of who she is through the mood through which she sees the things she sees, like what she, what we um, get to see her focus on, how yeah, she interprets sure. it, how she takes it in and understands things. And then that gives us kind of a sense of her mentality, right? Which yeah. is, is a really interesting, you know, we've talked about this in other episodes where, you know, you define a character by what they do and what they think and what they notice. And this is basically what this piece is doing from beginning to end. Yeah. Like you can almost describe it less as like a rumination or an essay style story than like a character sketch almost. 
Like almost put your character on a run and see what they see. It's yeah. a good, it's like you said, it's a good lens through which we see this character kind of come to life. She's not coming to life in her home. She's coming to life on her runs. Yeah. It's like plucking the Google man off the map and putting him in street view. Yeah, that's right. This actually made me think um, like of a contrast with that story we did recently, uh, Sea Oak, the George Saunders story. Yeah. Where And that. that story, when Bernie comes back from the dead, she's basically a, um, yeah, we talked about how it's like the metamorphosis when Gregor Samsa comes on stage as a bug or when Bernie <laughs> yeah. comes back from the dead. This is like a concrete metaphor for somebody's state of mind. And I think I specifically said in that episode, you could have rewritten Sea Oak as like a rumination where the character was just thinking about their aunt and like moving through life and like the ghost not the literal ghost or the literal body of their aunt, but the um, kind of memory of their aunt influenced the way they were interacting with the world and um, influenced his decisions and stuff. Whereas in this story, you could think of rewriting this story with some embodiment of her inner conflict. Like every time she goes out to run, there's a shadow that she has to race against or something like, and she has conversations with the shadow or something like that, that would express what's being expressed here in a more concrete way but this is doing it the opposite way this is doing it more in the uh, you see her state of mind through what she notices rather than in embodied conversation that she would have with some aspect of herself so that contrast between the two stories kind of you can think about different approaches to to writing a character yeah like as you're describing that i understand the difference but they're both so similar in certain ways absolutely yeah they're both like kind of devices yeah, like each character is dealing with something and then the way it's being expressed in the fiction is they're different, different ways of being expressed, but it's at heart the same thing. I'm trying to think of other examples of that. I don't remember it clearly enough, but that now I bake my own bread might be one. My good friend Ellie. Yeah, that was like a basically first person true essay where she's writing about how past experiences with food related to her relationship with her mother. Mm -hmm. Like the food might be a device in the sense that they're all memories instead of this kind of concrete thing where you're going through a run. Or if her mother had stepped onto stage and like into her kitchen or something, yeah, that right. would be more like the CEO metamorphosis way of approaching it. Right. But there's also something to the aspect of that having been a, like a curated list of memories over a long period of time. Whereas Lauren Groff's story is like, she runs every night and maybe we're talking about runs for the last year versus, you know what I mean? There's something more, uh, um, immediate about the idea of a run. It's more of a curated list, I think. I think they're similar yeah. in that they're curated lists. Yeah, they're similar that way, but like you know what I mean? Like one is drawing on a lifetime of, of experiences and the other is drawing on a list of common occurrences on this one particular thing. It would be like if Ellie's story was five times I baked bread with my mother. It usually <laughs> went like this, but one time it went like this. I think Lauren Groff gets away with this in a different way is my point. Ellie's felt like a memoir, you know, and this feels like a rumination because the run is so immediate. It's so regular. It's nightly. And she's summarizing one run by explaining how they usually go. Yeah. Well, I mean, the one is a snapshot and the other one is yeah. more of a, like That's you a, good, said, yeah. a, a memoir, but I think the way that they're realized are similar. Right. Um, that makes sense. The curated list. That's yeah. a good phrase. It's like, I bet Lauren Groff had five or six other real or imagined characters that she might run into, you know, and decided which darlings to kill to prove the point, you know? Yeah, that's right. That's how this is a curated list. 
right? She's using those things that the character will interpret a certain way to just build upon what it is she's trying to show us about this character. So the distinction I started with was showing us a character by what they notice and what things come about in their thought processes versus bringing those thought processes into a concrete foil, more or less, that comes onto stage that they encounter. I mean, obviously the metamorphosis, it wasn't a foil. He just literally became a bug, but the bug, it was the family dealing with him was the story, not him dealing with himself as a bug because he wound up dying anyway. So in Sea Oak, Bernie walking onto stage and yelling at everybody is the impetus for them reevaluating their lives. Whereas it didn't need to be that way. It could have just been her death and the next six months of their lives normally playing out and as their thought processes went on. Well, that makes sense. To talk about that device in terms of being an impetus is like adds another layer to it, right? Because like you said, it didn't have to be the impetus. In either case, you had one. It's just... Yeah, that's interesting. It's not It's not just the device. It's also the point. It's like what launches the story. Yeah, that's right. I don't know what advice you'd give based on this, you know, like pick one. <laughs> what is best for your story? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we spent a lot of time just now talking about like the curated list or the way Lauren Groff is building character through this curated list, you know, how she's interpreting these things so that we understand the character. But I mean, if we're jumping ahead to takeaways, my takeaway is more along the lines of if you are finding yourself doing what it is we both describe we've done in the past or do regularly, which is to write something based very closely on our own lives, like mm-hmm. just go ahead and see what happens when it is purely first person. You don't ever have to like have it see the light of day. But I've talked about this before. And I remember one time someone in the group laughed and I wanted to punch them. They're not even in the group anymore. I think it was like a, like a one-off joiner. But I said something about one of the reasons I love journalism. And when you get to write like narrative journalism or long form journalism, where you get a little leeway with the way that you're presenting the story and you get to be creative is that what remains in that situation is what I described as, and this is where it got the laugh, the confines of truth. You know, they were laughing at the premise that journalism is, <laughs> is confined by truth. And to my point, I think when when we find ourselves writing first person and we want to be first person, like I don't think many of us are tempted to lie. Like that's not why we're endeavoring to write this in the first place or else we would just write fiction. But I love what I've come up with when I think to myself, okay, how do I make a story of about what's real? And I think a really good example of this is something I've talked about a million times, which is Modern Love, the New York Times. These are people's real stories, real life situations, but it takes a writer to present them in a way that makes you want to hear about it. You don't want to hear people bitch about their ex-husband. You don't. You've heard a million of them do it. But when you add this like literary element to it, which is what we all are striving to do and then work within the confines of truth, you find yourself telling the story and presenting the story and using devices that make it an enjoyable read with an arc and a takeaway. So you are still exercising all of those fiction muscles. And I would argue you're forced to do them in ways that you aren't forced to do them when you think about fiction. You think about fiction and you struggle to think about your character motivations or you struggle to think about where it ends up or what happens next. All of that is erased when you focus on what has actually happened to you and what actually happened next and what your motivations at the time actually were. And it's so much more fun to make that an enjoyable read for me personally than it is to brainstorm potential storylines sometimes. So like if you're one of those people that's writing stuff and people are like, is this you? Maybe try first person. Like lots of people publish essays, lots of people pay and you'll get the same kind of praise, but it's 
it's even better, I would argue, because then when people read you, they're like, oh my God, this person's so funny. It's not the character that's funny. It's them. They're so funny. Oh, yeah. Or they're so smart. Or what an exciting life. It's interesting. That story about swimming. I tried to write that many times. I had like three different documents, three different beginnings, and just didn't work. Right. Um, so it took inventing the character, but I definitely tried to make it my own story. Right. Like you said, writing it in the first person, those first few tries, that's, it was definitely in the first person. And it, it, it's, <laughs> right. it gives you a, a way to um, kind of encapsulate it or figure out what's going on with what you're trying to say. Right. And then you can then you can decide whether it needs more or it's good on its own. Yeah. I think like a lot of times when we find ourselves tempted to write about something that's true for ourselves, like there's something there and it's almost like we give up and then it becomes fiction but there's already something there that made you want to write it in the first place you know so like see how long you can like sit there and figure out the best way to tell it so that you want to read it yeah i don't know if you have a boring life ignore this (laughs) but (laughs) all right well thanks guys if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, NaplesWritersWorkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.